The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornelier. And I'm Ryan Hastman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart, and we're recording this episode on May 10th, 2018. This episode, we're going to talk about the United Conservative Party convention, some of the resolutions that were discussed, including some controversial ones, and what the outcome of the convention means for the UCP a year ahead of the next election. We'll also talk about some non-UCP-related news in Alberta politics. Ryan's going to share some political wisdom in our So You Want to Be a Candidate segment. But before that, let's delve into some nomination and political gossip. It was an exciting weekend, and we'll get into that. I guess in terms of gossip, the biggest thing that I have now is it is game on for nominations. Green light, all systems go, time to launch. So I understand that the first round of UCP nominations will actually be opened up as early as this week. Um, the resolutions on the floor dictated the timeline, so that would mean that by mid to late June, the first tranche, is that a word? tranche of candidates will be nominated for the United Conservative Party. So for nerds like us, it's going to be an exciting summer. So w- which nominations do you think the UCP will go for first in which, uh, which districts, Ryan? Well, the general wisdom, and I don't have specific information, but the general wisdom with these things is you want to do the current caucus first, or early at least. What that does is it gives the chance for an MLA who is um, defeated, and in a couple cases, as we've gone over, we may have some running against each other. It gives them a chance to decide if they want to try running somewhere else. It's good for party unity. So I would imagine that the first round will see some of the MLAs go, and then shortly after that, they're going to get into those seats that are the most well-organized. So in some writings, such as Sherwood Park, Strathcona, and other places like that, where there's a candidate in place who's been organizing, there's money in the bank, the membership is strong, I would expect to see those ones go first. I think the leadership will want to make sure to stagger them around the province geographically because each nomination event is actually pretty volunteer heavy and they're going to need people to go and attend and scrutinize and all this stuff. So you can't do, for example, 10 in Edmonton at the same time. So I would imagine that we'll see by the end of the summer, um, say September 1st, I would think we'll have two thirds of them done. And uh, Jason Kenney said that by the end of 2018 and maybe early 2019 at the latest, they'll all be done. So that's 87 ridings holding 87 democratically contested nominations. So that's an awful lot. Yeah, I've been tracking nominations, uh, party nominations for probably the past year in going ahead into the 2019 election. And over the past six months, the and really over the past couple months, uh, specifically, there's been a lot of interest and a lot of new candidates stepping up to run for the for UCP nominations. Um, it's like a daily thing to update that list because there actually is a there is a lot of interest, and I mean it definitely it definitely shows that there is a lot of momentum behind the UCP at this point. Um, the NDP have started to started to nominate candidates already. There doesn't seem to be as much interest uh, in uh, in the NDP nominations. Um, I expect that that. They'll start nominating. They'll start nominating nominating their incumbents, and incumbents will decide whether or not they're going to run for re-election or not. Which we've seen a few already announce. Um, this past weekend, the NDP nominated uh, re-nominated two NDP incumbents, Christina Gray and Emmett Till Woods, and Maria Fitzpatrick in Lethbridge East. Now, there's the nominations getting ready, gearing up for the 2019 election, but there are also two nominations or two ridings where there are by-elections coming up that have to be held before 
the uh, before the next election is called. And we've talked about these in previous podcasts. Innisfil Sylvan Lake, which is probably one of the strongest conservative ridings in in uh, in the province, and then Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo, which is I wouldn't say the strongest conservative riding in the province, but a a very a, a very it's still a conservative riding. Uh, the UCP chose Devin Drieschen, yeah, and he defeated five challengers to win the UCP nomination in Innisfil Sylvan Lake. In Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo, the UCP have nominated Layla Goodridge, a uh, former political staffer, and I think she defeated three other candidates. And the NDP nominated uh, Councillor Wood Buffalo Municipal Councillor Jane Stroud in Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo. And in Innisfil Sylvan Lake, the NDP are expected to nominate uh, a high school English teacher. Uh, named Nicole Mooney, and I think they have their nomination meeting scheduled for the 25th of May. So that gives an indication that the NDP are preparing to uh, to call the by-elections at some point in the next couple months, that they have candidates ready. Um, and so far, as far as I can tell, those are the only two parties that are really organized, are really getting organized to run candidates. The Alberta party has said that it's going to run, it's going to run candidates in, in the by-elections, which is kind of an, uh, a new thing for the Alberta party since the last election. I don't, th- I think they've sat out every by-election since 2015. But interestingly, in, in Innisfil, Sylvan Lake, uh, Randy Thorstensen, who is the leader of the Reform Party of Alberta, uh, who had was actually the first candidate to declare that he was running in Innisfil, Sylvan Lake, has apparently now dropped out. So I don't know what that, uh, what that means. Um, but, uh, I mean, he would have been an, inter- at least an interesting character in that race. He's run in that riding before and, and done quite well in the past. So I think that, uh, I'm not sure how much he would have hurt the UCP, but it definitely helps the UCP that he's not in the race anymore. I, I don't think it would have really made a huge difference. Uh, I think it is worth pointing out though, that there's two party leaders who are choosing not to run once again with open by-elections. And if it was the UCP leader or even the NDP leader, to be fair, there would be some political heat for that. So, you know, when the Liberal Party leader and the Alberta Party Liberal, or sorry, the Alberta Party leader choose not to run once again, it is something that we should note. Um, there was exactly a year until likely the next election. So even if the two of them intended to represent different ridings in the next um, session, you know, I still think they should think about putting their name out there. If they want to be viable parties, if they want to play in the big leagues, you know, why do they keep sitting these things out? I'm not sure. Well, well, we'll just have to see which, what kind of candidates the uh, the Alberta Party and the Liberals uh, do nominate in these by-elections. The United Conservative Party met for its first founding convention last weekend uh, in uh, in Red Deer. Uh, 2,600 or more delegates and members uh, attending uh, in what was a huge political, political convention. Our co-host, Ryan Hassman, was on the ground in Red Deer attending the convention. Uh, participating in at in in at some level, Ryan, tell tell us a little bit about the convention. What was the feel on the ground? Yeah, it, it really was exciting. It it was, I understand, the largest non leadership convention in provincial political history. On the Saturday night, for the leader speech and Brad Wall's introduction, which was really a second speech, um, I'm told there was over three thousand people in attendance. They opened it up to people to come and see. The room was absolutely packed. And, you know, it's funny, I've never actually heard Bradwell speak in person. And I was blown away at how good he was. Like, it was honestly one of the best political speeches I've ever heard in person. It was, he was just so comfortable and calm and engaging. And he was really personable. 
And I mean, it was a friendly room, obviously, but it's amazing how when you take away the pressure of being a current politician, it really just allows these guys to just loosen up a bit and just talk. And it felt like he just was there to talk to me. You know, it was it was pretty amazing. And then Jason's speech was obviously great too. The observation I'll make about the conference in general was it actually felt like things were bursting at the seams, but in the best possible way. You know, everyone was really happy about it, but everything was just overwhelmed. The parking. Have you ever had trouble parking at the Sheraton in Red Deer before? Because I had to park across the street at Boston Pizza, across Gates Avenue. It was it was crazy. Like you couldn't, I got double parked on Friday, so I couldn't leave. Um, the food, they ended up having to break it up into, into shifts. So everybody got a meal ticket with different times on it. The registration desk was, you know, what would be a nightmare normally. But the thing is, everyone was just so happy. It almost felt like, isn't this great how overwhelmed we are? So I really do want to give a shout out to the volunteers and to the staff who organized it all because it went over very well. The hotel was able to handle it. They had a lot of breakout rooms. There was water at the back of the room. There was everything like that. So the general mood was great. Um, the hospitality suites and the other sort of social time was, was a blast. You know, I think we're probably going to get into some of the questions about some of the controversies. So I'll just put on the record, you know, I, I definitely expected all along for there to be a diverse debate. You're bringing two groups together who really have been at each other's throats for 20 years. One of the things that I felt, one of the observations I made was everyone, you'd look around the room and you would see people who, until very recently, I cannot believe were in the same room. Like the, the greenest of wild roses and the blue and orangest of PCs. And they were in the same room, wearing the same buttons, ready to go. Um, I expected diversity of debate. We got it. I think we'll get into that after. But, you know, we now that we've come out of this uh, with a fairly robust policy platform and party governance structure, the next step, of course, is going to be to create the party platform. And so, you know, we'll see what happens. Of course, nominations as well. So I want to talk a bit about the controversial debate that we mentioned on Saturday night, and, 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 and in the context of, of, of the kind of the tone change, or if, if there was a tone change at the convention. So Saturday night, Jason Kenney gave a what has been described as kind of a barn burner political speech. I, from what I understand, he talked for like an hour, and he got like 15 standing ovations. The crowd was really into it. So as, as, as a political observer who was watching, who wasn't in Red Deer, but was watching the media coverage and watching this watch it from the traditional media and on social media, it seemed that Saturday night conservatives were very excited, very energized, uh, and Jason Kenney was getting good media from his speech. And then Sunday came along, and a majority during a, during the a, the policy debates, fifty seven percent of the UCP delegates uh, voted in favor of a controversial parental rights motion. And parental rights is is kind of a, a buzz term that's been used in conservative circles for the past couple of years. I think there was actually an article, I think Paula Simons in the Edmonton Journal actually wrote, a, wrote an article a few years ago about how Paul or how um, uh, Tim Morton introduced the the idea or even the concept, the words parental rights into, de into debate in Alberta politics in like 2005 in a private member's bill. Um, anyway, uh, if I can find a link to it, I'll put a link to it on the blog uh, that, that goes along with this post. Uh, but the going back to going back to the motion, uh, the the debate around parental rights in the context of what we were talking about at the what they were talking about at the UCP convention in, in the context of how it's you being used in Alberta politics right now usually has to do with gay straight alliances in 
Alberta schools, which are gay straight alliances are student initiated anti-bullying clubs and certain individuals and uh, 57, you know, including many of those who were the 57% in, at the UCP convention, who voted the UCP convention, uh, have a real issue with these these clubs being set up without parental advisement. Um, and some groups use the argument of parental rights basically as an anti-GSA argument, um, whether they whether they they uh, think they should be set up or not, or whether they think they should they should be involved or not, uh, or informed by teachers. Uh, you, and we had a moment where UCP MLAs actually got up to the mic and argued against the motion. We had Rick McIver who gave the, said, said the quote, this is, this is about outing gay kids. Uh, don't be called the Lake of Fire Party. I'm begging you, this will really severely hurt our chances at winning. Don't do that to yourself. Uh, MLA Leela Ahir said, when we're talking about freedoms, that means all people's freedoms. That means making sure the children have safe spaces in schools. And these are quotes from, from C- uh, CTP and a CBC report. Um, so you had three MLAs. I think Jason Nixon was, was the third MLA that got to speak uh, against the motion. You had three MLAs urging party members not to vote for this motion that would widely be seen, and I think could rightfully be seen as, as an anti-GSA motion, because I think that's exactly what it is. And that's, that's really what the, the intent of, of the political, political powers behind it are. And, and that became the big story of the, of the Sunday of basically the wrap-up of the convention. And I felt that, that uh, things were going pretty well for the UCP up until that point. Uh, and then the, the convention kind of ended on this sour note of bringing back this, uh, this issue, this contentious issue that, that had really tied the Wild Rose Party and the PC Party and the UCP, totally tied them in knots and, and their MLAs in knots over this issue over the past two, three, four years. Um, so, Ryan, I mean, I guess my, my question is, 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 did you notice, like, a, was there a, a change in the feeling in the convention of, of the delegates when this came out? Or, or was it just something that had happened and there was so much else going on actually at the convention that the delegates really didn't, uh, it may have, may have not kind of set in what bad precedent and what, well, I guess what, what bad politics this, uh, this motion had, uh, um, had generated? One of the other things we had to do this weekend was we had to get through a lot of both governance and policy resolutions. This is a party that was essentially a clean slate. There was the unity agreement, but that agreement said that at this convention, they would decide on a whole lot. So on the Saturday, they actually had a large number of special resolutions that were put to the floor that the policy and the interim joint board had proposed around party governance. But what ended up happening, because conservatives are policy wonks and principled and everyone's there for a reason, is they actually didn't want to approve a bunch of them in an omnibus manner. So they actually had to break them out. And so the Saturday, we probably spent four or five hours debating essentially, I think it was 90 resolutions. So it, it kind of took forever. The On the Sunday, when the policy... Um, when the policy stuff started, the debates around the policy, everyone knew that it would be really important to be in the room and all that. But what's interesting is that on Resolution 30, there was actually only um, less than 1,000 votes cast out of the 2,400 registered voters. So the vote was 562 to 429. So you know, you're talking about less than 1,000 people. Now, where is everybody else? It's hard to say. People come in and out of the convention floor. You know, There's a lot going on. It's a long day. So I was lined up to oppose the motion and speak to it. 
with Rick, with Jason, with Leela. My personal opinion is that it was not helpful. The comment that Jason Nixon made to the floor was, you know, we keep falling for the NDP's trap. They would love nothing more for us to do this to ourselves once again. And, you know, unfortunately we did. But I think what it speaks to is the robust opinions that are not uniform. You know, we don't, we definitely don't all agree on this one. Uh, I made a comment somewhere else today that if we all wanted to agree, or if I wanted to have a party where everybody agreed with me, eventually the party would just be me. So what I take heart in is that later on that day, the leader, Jason Kenney, was absolutely clear. In fact, I'll just read you his quote. So he said, let me be absolutely stone cold clear. A united conservative government will not be changing law or policy to require notification of parents when kids join GSAs. We will not do that. As we know, and it was said at the microphone, there is currently long-standing legislation that is already in place. The NDP has been in government for three years and they haven't changed it either, which is that there is a notification requirement whenever sexual or religious instruction is brought into any extracurricular program. So parents aren't notified if their kid is in an extracurricular group, but they are told if something's happening in the extracurricular groups. I think that's probably a pretty good balance. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely something that people feel very strongly about on both sides. But what we don't need to do is anything that puts kids at risk or really just get into the whole subject of when they're outed or when the conversation should happen. I think that's between the student and whoever they want to talk to. So it was a little bit, to be honest, it was a little bit frustrating for some of us who want to move past this. And especially knowing that the media was there and the opponents were there. Minister Egan got in his car and ripped up to Red Deer to give a breathless scrum, saying all sorts of hyperventilation things about us. And like we knew it was coming. So that was the frustration. And, you know, as far as Rick's comments, I think he was more speaking to the typical overblown rhetoric that the NDP have and will use that, you know, this is about how we feel about gay kids and all that stuff. It's just not true. Talking to people on the floor, some of them knew that this was a pivotal moment. A lot of them just faced it like every other policy that day. I, I don't know how many they got through that day, but it was in the order of dozens. So um, I'm pretty happy to see the response from the leadership. You know, there, the this convention was the completion of Jason Kenney's five-step plan. That step five would be the um, policy development process AGM. But the reality is no party ever has a platform that's actually written by members. You know, it just isn't possible. Platforms are concentrated strategic documents about asking voters for their consent to be governed. So when we do the platform, Jason Kenney was clear. It's not going to touch changing the notification requirement for GSAs. Uh, I'm sorry if that disappoints some of our members, but it's just the reality. You know, we've been through too much to lose sight of what's right here. The other thing that I found really encouraging was I had a chance to speak with Harrison Fleming, who's from the LGBT Tory group, and he's very impressive. And maybe the thing that impressed me the most was actually how he behaved after the vote. So it was very personal for him. It's not theoretical. You know, this is his life. But he didn't storm out. He didn't, you know, grab his ball and go home. He was very positive. He remained very um, productive. And he just said, we have work to do. Right after that vote happened, I walked outside the hall. 
and there was a crowd around him and around his table of people just coming up to him saying, I want to support you. You're welcome in our party. And I found that very encouraging because this is a party that's about inclusivity. We have essentially, and the leader said the night before, a, a, a focus on the economy, on getting people back to work. And none of that depends on who you love or who you worship. So some of the other highlights, and I don't want to sound like I'm reading talking points or anything, but we, we passed resoundingly highly supported resolutions around repealing the carbon tax. I don't know if you guys saw that, but it was 98% in favor. <laughs> um, expanding. Sorry, sorry, the, UC, the UCP wants to repeal the carbon tax? That's Yeah, it was a shocker. It was a oh, shocker. Was I, a... Didn't, I, I didn't see that one coming. That's a... I think the 2% didn't understand how to work the button. We actually went with an electronic voting system. But we passed resolutions around expanding national and international market access options, around improving the application review and approval time within the energy regulator process, recognizing and building upon the contribution of the existing industries. You know, we've passed so much great stuff. And you've heard of the 80-20 rule. With politics, it's like the 99-1 rule, where you can have a 72 hours of productive, friendly, constructive work, but you have two or three resolutions on the floor that go sideways, and that's the coverage. So I do feel um, very positive about it. I know that sounds like spin, but what's, what's <laughs> not spin is that every party in the world would kill to have 2,400 people pay $250 to come down and speak to policies and resolutions of their own money. It, you know, it was a huge turnout. Um, at one point, I actually spoke against the motion to tighten the membership rules. And what I said was, you know, why are we afraid of outside groups coming in and taking over? Look at this room. There's 2,500 people here giving up not only a weekend, not only $250, but time with their families, all that stuff to debate policy. So by every metric that a party's health is measured, money, volunteers, nomination excitement, the UCP is killing it. So I feel pretty good overall. Now, just just touching to touch one more point very briefly on the convention. Um, one of the thing, and not talking about GSAs, um, one of the things that I found really interesting was that this convention was kind of, and I wrote a bit about this on on, on the blog last week. Was this convention was, I mean, it, it, it celebrating the uh, you know the, the marking the unity between the Wildrose and the PC parties, but it really also marks the the unity between the UCP and Conservative Party of Canada. Um, I was, I mean, you could see it, Andrew Scheer speaking, there were probably dozens of members of parliament there. Uh, this is something that we haven't seen in Alberta politics for decades since Preston Manning ripped the conservative movement out from, from, uh, from the federal progressive conservatives and uh, Ralph Klein's battles with Preston Manning uh, and even the, uh, the Canadian Alliance um, federally and, and uh, the formation of the Wild Rose and the PC party. Um, this really is the, uh, the kind of the unity of, of not just the two conservative parties, but of the conservative movement in Alberta uh, and bringing the federal conservatives into the fold. Uh, I think it represents a totally new dynamic in, uh, in Alberta politics, especially going into the next election. I mean, anybody who pays attention to Canadian politics knows that the federal conservatives are, are very well organized. Uh, and uh, and now that the the UCP is essentially going to have access to all of that infrastructure, I think is going to be uh, will be quite interesting to watch in the next election. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about it on the show before, but the during the Harper years, specifically what I know of, the federal party earned far more votes than the two provincial parties put together. 
And I think you're right. And it's not just about, you know, the people in that room, but the volunteers and the donors and the supporters. There's a lot of federal campaigns that, you know, have sign makers and door knockers and phone callers and all that stuff. And Jason Kenney was the right leader to bring them all in line. So, um, you know, our opponents should not take it lightly that the federal party is engaged and fully, fully bought in. There was a number, I don't know how many, but there was a number of MPs there. Some of them were speaking at the microphone. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time for those of us partisan hacks on the right, that's for sure. But as is always worth pointing out, anything can happen and anything can change. So part of Jason's speech on Saturday was, you know, ignore the polls, stay humble, work hard, pretend like you're five votes behind. And I think that wisdom is always true. In the legislature this week, MLAs are back debating bills, uh, debating legislation and motions, uh, one of which is Bill 9, the Protecting Choice for Women Accessing Health Care Act. Uh, this bill... Uh, establishes a bubble zone, basically a protest-free bubble zone around abortion clinics in the province. Uh, and it was in response to uh, basically a bill to stop harassment of staff and patients uh, from people who may be protesting uh, protesting these clinics. Now, one of the things that, I mean, the, the, the one of the reasons why this bill is getting so much attention is that UCP MLAs have decided that they don't want to debate nor vote on this bill. Um, now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this because I think there's been a lot said about this out, out in social media and, and in, in the traditional media, but, but I just want to say that I do think, regardless of, of how an MLA feels about um, abortion, which is you know, a very controversial, a very personal issue for a lot of, for a lot of, Albert, for, for a lot of Albertans and for a lot of politicians, I do think it's, it's very poor form for the opposition to simply refuse to debate at all and ref even refuse to vote. Uh, on this bill, and 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 they've been seen. We've seen video of UCP MLAs instead of when instead of voting on the bill, um, they simply get up and leave the chamber. And uh, for the, for the time, the period when when the voting happens in in the first, second, and third uh, first and second readings, and then and then they come back in the, into the assembly chamber when uh, when voting is complete. And and I, I I don't know. I just I think this is this is really poor form. I mean, I understand that the issue of uh, of abortion is. I mean, it, like I said, it's very con it's controversial for a lot of people, and and especially for for conservatives, a lot, a lot of conservatives, and a lot of UCC, UCP supporters. Um, but when you're talking about protecting staff and patients who are in a very vulnerable, many who are in a very vulnerable position, protecting them from harassment uh, and potential abuse from people outside, uh, I mean, it it seems to be a bit of a no brainer. Um, but but it, it it's concerning that that to me that that they can't even touch the issue that that regardless of how they feel about whether they're whether you're whether you're pro life or pro choice that you can't even have a you know contribute to a debate or even vote on on an issue such as harassment and and I I, I just want to say I think it's it's pretty poor form on on the UCP's um, uh, UCP's part in, in this case I have a I have a naive sort of non insider question. Why not simply abstain? Like, why walk out and, and what? I don't really understand. Why not just abstain? Well, effectively, that's what they're doing, right? Um, if you were Alberta pro-life, you'd be concerned that they're not voting against this. So they actually are abstaining. Mm -hmm. The walkout is an interesting strategy. Uh, I don't have any insight into it from the inside. 
I suspect it's somewhat related to what we said about what happened with Mr. McIver on the floor, but in a different issue. That um, if you're concerned that a much worse story could happen, then you reduce the risk. That's just my speculation. So, you know, I uh, I don't have a lot to say about it, but the one thing I'll say is they are actually they are also not voting it down. So. Um, Maybe they'll please neither side, but at the end of the day, the legislation will pass. And I think the plan is for it to stop being available as a political stick to whack us with. And I guess the only other thing I'll say is that particularly Robin from the NDP caucus has had a strong GIF game over this, um, and they're having some fun with it. But to use my most hated expression, I guess it is what it is. and. By the time the writ drops, uh, the UCP will be back to talking about the economy. Bill 12, uh, the Preserving Canada's Economic Prosperity Act, a very dramatically dramatic sounding bill, uh, which is uh, known as the shutting the tap, sh shutting the oil and gas shipments off to BC, shutting the taps off to BC Act, uh, went started third reading uh, today in the legislature. And it started third reading on the same day that Premier Rachel Notley announced. And this is the ongoing, I think we're probably in week, week 700 uh, of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline dis political dispute between Alberta and British Columbia. Uh, uh, Premier Rachel Notley announced that the Alberta government has bought a bunch of billboards and is running an advertising campaign across the country, uh, but specifically in British Columbia. And they unveiled um, the design of some billboards uh, talking about that are going to talk about how um, schools and hospitals and roads and bike lanes are all uh, are, are are all built and all beneficiaries of uh, of Alberta's oil and of pipelines, uh, and that uh, Environment and Parks Minister Shannon Phillips is going to be traveling to Kamloops to go speak and meet with the uh, the British Columbia Chamber of Commerce. Uh, now I think Kamloops is probably pretty safe territory for the for the pro pipeline crowd. Uh, it's not uh, down or not. Uh, uh, Nelson or not uh, Vancouver Island or uh, or downtown Vancouver um, but it is interesting that the Alberta government is continuing uh, uh, the well, continuing the pressure and how they're continuing the pressure on on, on British Columbia uh, ahead of the um, the uh, the May 31st deadline that uh, that Kinder Morgan uh, imposed to uh, to put pressure on the provinces and the feds to to get this pipeline uh, get the political uh, objections or get the political uh, issues settled for the construction of this pipeline. I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling so overdone with this issue. Uh, it seems that it is taking up the pipeline issue. The pipeline debate is taking up so much oxygen in Alberta politics. Uh, and I mean, there's there's so much there's so much else going on. Not so, like I mean, there's a lot else going on in Alberta politics. But but it seems that uh, all almost all the the provincial government can focus on and, and and they're just pouring so much political capital right now into this into this pipeline debate that doesn't really really seem like it's actually getting anywhere and and I'm not sure that uh, that Rachel Notley or Jason Kenney or another potential premier of Alberta could act you know could actually make a difference in in convincing you know convincing British Columbians now well that that uh, or the BC government that uh, that this that uh, that this pipeline should be built now I think one of the interesting things that's that uh, one of the interesting pieces of news that uh, that's come out of British Columbia this past week is that from what I understand uh, Kennedy Stewart who is a member of Parliament for Burnaby and one of the 
key opponents of the pipeline. Uh, I think he was even he was arrested with with Elizabeth May protesting at the Kinder Morgan site. From what I understand, he is going to, or he has, or he's going to announce that he's going to run for mayor mayor of Vancouver, which creates another interesting dynamic that uh, that you know what happens if this big pro pipeline or a big anti pipeline. Uh, politician becomes the uh, you know is is elected on on a mandate in Vancouver to uh, to oppose the pipeline that creates another another huge political dynamic um, that kind of already exists but not really uh, kind of in an electoral mandate sort of way in in, uh, in municipal politics in British Columbia. I'm ready to move on. I don't think this issue is over. Um, I don't know what's going to happen if Alberta actually does turn off the taps to, for oil and gas to British Columbia. I think it actually might hurt us more than it hurts them. Uh, or hurt us both and not get the pipeline built at all. Um, like Elaine but, says, "War, what is it good for, man?" Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I just, I, I'm really waiting for this issue to <laughs> either so, way for this issue to be over with. So I, I agree with you that it's been a lot. I think it somehow has evolved into a proxy issue or a microcosm of the current political struggle. The campaign, basically, the campaign is on now. Notley has made it a symbol of her legitimacy as a government or as a, you know, patriotic Albertan premier. And Kenny has made it sort of the last stand where um, nothing but full approval and development of the pipeline will work. The the thing that I find a little interesting is it's really not totally up to either of them. You know, the premier mm-hmm. of Alberta isn't actually going to build the pipeline. And as we've discussed on the show before, the opposition has a much easier job. You know, it's just like stopping a goal scorer in hockey is easier than scoring goals because there's a million ways to stop someone. There's only one way to score. So there's a million ways to to stop this pipeline. There's only one way to get it done. Um, when the MP for Burnaby runs for mayor, he is going to be speaking. You know, they say all politics are local. Well, he's making that really tangibly true because he doesn't have to worry about his national colleagues or, you know, Linda Duncan in Edmonton, Strathcona, or whatever. He can just worry about his own show. So I don't know how this thing gets resolved. I know that if Jason Kenney forms the next government, he will be very strong and very tough and bring in, you know, he spoke on Saturday about a, a fight back plan and some of the different steps. And some of it is going to be pretty harsh. So let's hope it gets built. I mean, I just, I can't believe we're in a country where one province, and not only one province, but one city in one province effectively can stop a national program. It's it's pretty upsetting. I know that it gets correlated with left-right and support for oil, but if we think of it as some other type of project, if it was about potash development or, I don't know, um, mining things in Sudbury, you know, and it was happening, I think we'd feel differently about it. Like, we have a confederation for a reason, and if it, you know, if we're not going to get along, is really frustrating. So I don't think Notley can drop it and I don't think Kenny's going to drop it. So maybe we need some sort of like drinking game or something. Every time the word Trans Mountain is said in the next year, we do something. Um, but that number is going to be pretty high. It's not going away anytime soon. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor this week, ATB Financial. That's right, Dave. I uh, Part of the reason we have been I guess a little bit late and inconsistent in getting the pod out is that uh, I have been traveling the province. Uh, most recently, I was up in Grand Prairie where ATB opened its fourth entrepreneur center. Do you guys know about ATB's entrepreneur centers at all? I do not. I, I don't. 
please wow. t- t- tell us more. I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you said that, Dave. The entrepreneur centers are a different kind of bank branch that not only provide banking services but also kind of like value added stuff to help entrepreneurs to manage their businesses. Everything from you know lunch and learn sessions to a place called the Knowledge Exchange, uh, and my colleague at ATB, Tyler Butler, who works with me in our media and story team are even talking about in starting in the summertime, having office hours at the Edmonton and Calgary entrepreneur centers to provide information to business owners on how they might use social media to promote their businesses. So if that sounds like something that might interest you, Mr. or Mrs. Entrepreneur, ATB is here to help. Visit atbentrepreneurcenter.com to find out more about the programming, resources, and all of our locations. And I do say we because I work for ATB, full disclosure. Um, You can check it all out at atbentrepreneurcenter.com. So I'm out here in Halifax right now, and while no no one here is talking about pipelines, everyone out here is waiting anxiously for our next segment. So you want to be a candidate. So Ryan, it's all yours. I'm a big deal in Halifax. <laughs> oh, they, 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 they love you in Halifax. <laughs> so thanks, Dave. Uh, I still don't know why we don't call this the S-Y-W-T-B-A-C, but I'll keep working on that. I've got a pretty um, good idea. Just to, <laughs> just to build on last the last couple segments. So I've talked about the candidate having three main jobs, and last time we covered voters. Next time, we're going to cover volunteers. This time, we're going to cover everybody's favorite subject, money. The big almighty dollar. Dollars in politics and in the world make the world go around. Nothing happens in politics without money. It's just the reality of it. You can you can wail, you can gnash your teeth, but in order to be effective in politics, you need to have money. Caveat, about 20 of the NDP MLAs who are currently MLAs spent virtually no money last time which is why I have issues in my life, because it's not fair. But you can't plan for that. That's a generational thing. For the most part, we're talking about the typical situation. You're going to need money. Now, I'm going to go quickly, and we're going to have some time for you guys to ask me some questions at the end. So there are new provincial rules this cycle. Spending in a nomination has been capped at $10,000. Spending by a campaign in the general election, so the Conservatives or the NDP in a riding, is capped at $50,000. That will go with that will grow with inflation over time, but that's what it is for now. The other big change is corporate donations are gone. Union donations are gone. It's now only individuals, and it's only Alberta residents. So the other thing that's interesting about this cap on the donation side is that it's total. It includes donations sorry the cap is four thousand dollars per individual that's total including donations to nomination campaigns to the general election campaign to leaderships or to the by-election so that quickly runs out if people want to contribute in more than one place or to more than one candidate now those are the cons the pro from a candidate's perspective is now you're able to issue tax receipts for your nomination contributions which is great so it isn't just relying on pure charity people actually get a really generous tax receipt back Okay, but how? There are really four steps, and it's similar to the voter ID wheel. Number one, identify potential donors. Number two, cultivate potential donors. Number three, ask them. Number four is thank them, and then repeat. So, number one, 
identifying potential voters. This builds off of the supporters ID work that I talked about last time. There are really two groups of potential supporters. Number one, supporters who live in the riding. Number two, supporters who are outside of the riding, but still in Alberta. So if you're from outside of the riding, you're going to have to help in different ways. You can't vote. You have to volunteer or give dollars. Again, no donations are allowed from anybody outside of Alberta. So what do you do to identify your potential donors? Well, as I mentioned before, and this builds on last week, is make a list. Write it down. You need to have contact information. You need to have it householded. You need to know addresses, postal codes, and ideally email addresses as well. Write it down or it doesn't exist. You should have one spot where all these people are listed. Anyone who might give to you from grandma to perfect strangers who have given to other campaigns. Put it on a list. Number two, you have to cultivate. So if you're brand new or you haven't reached out to them before, the first step of cultivation is to introduce yourself. I think there's a lot of value in doing this in a letter or in an email. You need something tangible. So I would write something to these donors. Introduce yourself, explain what you're doing, what you're running for. A lot of people don't know that the nomination is open or it's coming. And, you know, keep it brief. Make it genuine. Make it something that you, you know, with your voice. But you have to explain who you are and what you're doing. After you make this initial ask, you should continue to cultivate, which is why I'm separating cultivation out from asks. Because you need to keep reporting back to these people. They are interested in your campaign. They want to know what you're doing, what you've accomplished. Now, this letter... And if you're nice to me, I can send you a sample, should include an explicit ask, which leads me to number three, ask. So campaigns take resources. People get it. People understand. It's not a surprise. Everyone knows. Now, $10,000 is very doable in any riding for any party, even the party I won't name this week. You can raise $10,000. So how do you, you know, how do you do it? How do you eat an elephant? Well. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. You don't think about $10,000. You think about, how do I get there? You know, you could, if you had people willing to give $4,000, which in many cases, yourself and your spouse are there, 2.5 people at $4,000 and you're done. So great, sounds easy, right? Well, if that's not realistic, then build yourself a gift pyramid and make a plan. You want to make an elephant bite strategy. So I've made a sample one here. To get to $10,000, you would need 20 donors at 100, 10 donors at 200, four donors at 500, two donors at 1,000, one donor at 2,000. You need to use different tactics for different types of asks. I would send out this intro, intro letter with an ask to everybody. But once I start getting into the $500 asks, I would follow it up with a personal phone call. Um, and once you start getting into the probably $500 or $1,000, it depends on what your gift pyramid looks like, I would ask to go and see them and look them in the eye face to face and say, you know what I'm doing, you know elections cost money, will you support me? So you, that's really what it is. How do you get to $10,000, build a gift pyramid? You know, Think it through so that you trust the system. The expression is plan your work and then work your plan. If you tell yourself you have to raise 10 grand today, it's very intimidating. But if you tell yourself, okay, I gotta get um, four donors at 500 and I'm gonna make 20 phone calls, it's probably easier than you think. So number four to wrap up is thank them. You can't overthink. You cannot do it too much. You should thank them with a note. You should thank them on the phone. You might even have some special ideas like a special reception or an after party 
you know, think, 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 because this cycle is a wheel. They go back up to potential donors again. Your best donors in the future are your donors in the past. So really, that's it. There's no silver bullet. You have to ask. You have to ask in different ways, and you have to ask lots of people. And really, that's the secret. Ryan, is it is it good to, you said ask lots of people because you're you're sort of banking on percentages. You talked about going back to people who've donated before. Within a single campaign, is it common to keep going back to people? Maybe they opened their wallets the first time and, and just gave 20 bucks. Is it common to go back to them and say, I know you can do better than that? Well, it depends on what you define as the cycle. So no, in a five-week writ, you wouldn't do that. But if you think of the campaign as including the nomination period, and then the pre-writ period, and then the writ, there's really different phases. And the interesting thing about these limits is it actually probably will motivate some people to increase their donation. Because what they're going for is cost certainty. So if there's no cap at all, the psychology is different than if there is a cap. So you could easily go back to people and say, you know, thanks so much for the thousand bucks. Would you do another 500 or whatever the case may be? Now, the interesting thing too is there's actually a spending limit. So once you've raised your 10 grand for a nomination, there's no reason to ask again, but you continue to cultivate the relationship. Once a general election has raised its 50, there isn't a lot of reason to keep asking other than to contribute maybe to the central campaign or to build for future campaigns. I mean, I would never suggest that you don't ask, but this this is a new world with really strict caps and it's changed the psychology a little bit. So I would plan out more than one ask for a candidate right now today on May the 10th because you have at least a year. And so there are different phases and that's part of the update. You know, thanks so much for supporting me at the nomination. Now we know who our opponent is and now we know what the election's about and we need your help to go up there and do the thing. I think one of the things that's interesting uh, with the changes in the election finance laws and the strict limits that have been imposed, and now that they also impose, now that they also include nomination races, uh, is how it's. I think it, I think it's impacting how the parties are staggering their preparation for the next election. I don't think it's an accident that the UCP is planning to have all mo- all or 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 most of its nomination races done in 2018, uh, and then have. You know, because people are going to be donating to nomination campaigns and fundraising for nomination, competitive nomination races. Uh, and then when December 31st comes and the clock restarts for not for fundraising for next year, the party will have a fresh fundraising base uh, of uh, and, and there will be no, no caps that will have been met as of as of January 1st. So there'll be an entirely new fresh, uh, fresh base of, of potential donors. Um, starting in in 2019 and i think both the ucp and the ndp are kind of approaching it that way um so i think that's kind of an interesting way that uh, that both parties are 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 kind of changing the way they're they're uh, changing the way they're planning for the next election because of these fundraising laws and i think that was actually interesting was um i mean i i, I don't i don't know this for sure but i suspect that probably had to do uh, was one of the reasons why the UCP held their leadership convention, uh, their leadership race last fall, rather than waiting to hold it this spring, um, because the uh, the way the rules changed, the uh, donations to leadership races also apply as well. So holding it the lead leadership race in 2017, doing nominations in 2018, and then having to fundraise for the election in 2019, I think that's what we'll see from, uh, from the political parties going ahead, as long as these rules stay in place. Yeah, the interesting thing, too, that will change things is if the next government, whichever party forms it, changes the rules around PACs, 
because the packs have quite different rules than the parties themselves and the limits and contributions that on spending are much more generous so i think there will be some changes next time I, I do think it's positive that they got rid of union and corporate donations i think it's just a good idea um mm -hmm. there's probably arguments in favor of it but i personally think the federal model works best here i don't know what i think about nominations being able to issue tax receipts like for the candidates it's great mm -hmm. um it's an interesting development because that really just hasn't been part of nominations before. So yeah, we'll see. But you know, for anyone out there who's tired of being asked to donate, there is a way to make it stop and it's give $4,000 to some combination of the central party, the local riding, the local nomination contestants. So yeah. And I, I'm afraid that's the only way to get political parties to stop asking for money is to donate the maximum. And, uh, and even then, they'll come and talk to you. They'll probably have, you know, even more incentive to talk to you the next year. So, well, exactly. Then you're on the whale list. I don't know yeah. if I've told you guys this, but when I ran in 2011, um, one of my favorite stories is the next day, literally the next day. So May the 3rd, 2011, I actually got a fundraising call from the conservative party of Canada. And <laughs> the lady was very kind. She was probably somewhere near you in Halifax, Dave. And, you know, she said the script of, we're very thrilled at the result, uh, but as you know, the liberals are going to come at us hard and we need to prepare for the next election. And will you join Stephen Harper's majority? <laughs> I, you know, I didn't cut her off or anything. And I was probably in a bit of a weird space, but I just said, you know, ma'am, I, I don't think I'm going to give today. I feel a little um, depleted at the moment, but, you know, I do appreciate the call. And the thing is, it's easy to hate on these calls, but they work. And really, there's not a lot of alternatives. So. I feel like you would have been justified by by saying you. I have literally given my heart and soul to this party, and uh, and today is probably not the best day to ask for money. Yeah, and with organizations this large, you should never assume malice when just sheer size. You know, is probably the best explanation. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure it was some volunteer and uh, some yeah. volunteer in another part of the country making phone calls. Now, I I, I want to ask Ryan. You mentioned about. Holding a like holding a donor appreciation event or donor appreciation party. Now I've I've donated to a number of political candidates in the past, and it's about a 50-50. Half of them will hold some kind of you know volunteer donor appreciation event, um, or you know most will send a letter, but about half don't. And some of them like I've donated to candidates who even some have been successful who don't do anything after the election. That that, that always kind of surprises me. So what did you, when you ran? For um, for the conservatives, when you ran in, in the election, uh, did did you hold? Did you have a, a donor appreciation event afterward, or or something? Can you, can you give us like an example of what uh, what that would look like? To my memory serves, we combined it with volunteers. You know, we we were fortunate to have just a huge team, and honestly, it was emotionally overwhelming to see so many people give so much of their personal time and treasure and everything else. So, we had a party. You know, I, I think everybody should. You know, I, I think that it is kind of shocking that a lot of people don't get thanked. But, you know, you have a whole range of personality types. Even among politicians, not everybody is overly outgoing or, or anything. But what I can tell you is if I was in charge of the political parties, the culture around thanking and being systematic about this would be very present. Because what we know is the best candidate for a future donation is the current and past donors. And this is true not only of political parties, but any charity, any group at all, even customers, right? So if I was in charge of a caucus, 
things like being regularly in touch with your supporters, your members, your donors would be ab an absolute explicit requirement. Um, it would be measured. It would be reported. We would have something on the wall for all of your caucus buddies to see who's winning. Because this stuff is should be the basics. It shouldn't be, you know, 50-50 or like exceptional. It should be absolutely the basics. And the best MPs and MLAs, the ones who survive nomination challenges and changes of government and tides that come in and come out, are the ones who are the most in touch with their local supporters. So, you know, to the degree that I have any influence over this batch of candidates, I'm going to reinforce what you said. They should all be doing it. It doesn't have to be a fancy wine and cheese. It could be a barbecue in someone's backyard or it could be a thank you but you should do something to thank these people because there's no limit to things that we can spend our money on or our time and if they're choosing to send it supporting you you owe them at minimum a personal thank you all right we're going to take a little a little dip a little trip into our mailbag ryan what's our first question do we have a mailbag sound adam i'm going to assume you edited that in right yeah absolutely okay good so our first question is from christy G. Christy says, I want to hear more from Dave. He is always asking the questions and Ryan gives the commentary. It would be nice to have more of a balance. What does Dave think the NDP has to do to increase support? I agree. Ryan talked way too much. What do you think, Dave? Well, thanks for the question, Christy. I'm I'm happy to talk, uh, and uh, I'm I'm sure that many thousands of you would love to listen to a, a podcast uh, that is hours long with me just talking about Alberta politics. And you can listen to that in our upcoming edition of Dave spends nine hours a day talking about uh, about electoral boundaries. Uh, it's a twelve part series that will uh, will go on until next uh, until next uh, next spring and and I'm grateful that Adam has agreed to uh, to produce and edit these uh, it's going to be uh Encyclopedia Britannica uh, uh audio version of uh, of Alberta's electoral boundary so so do look forward to that what does what does the NDP need to do to increase support I think the I mean I, I've been struggling with this question because I I think the NDP need to start acting like new democrats and and I'm not necessarily not saying that 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 they're totally off off track with everything they're doing in government now, but I really think that they're focusing on some things that aren't really gaining that that might be good for good good politics in terms of being a government of Alberta, um, but aren't necessarily isn't necessarily good politics in terms of increasing support for their own party or increasing their chances in the next election. And I think that. And you know maybe I'm wrong, but I I really think that all this focus on pipelines is you know it, it, it like I said it may be good politics for for the for being the, the government of Alberta, but it is not really great politics for being a new Democrat in or a progressive um, in uh, in Alberta. Uh, I think instead of putting all their energy into pipelines um, that may or may not be built and may or may not be built in the next year or so. Uh, I mean, I think the NDP should remind Albertans uh, about the government's investments in schools, in healthcare, in, in much-needed infrastructure investments, uh, about things like the affordable childcare programs that they're creating and expanding across the province, about reducing school fees, um, investments in public transit, um, updating and modernizing Alberta's labor laws. 
uh, banning corporate union donations. I mean, I think this NDP government has been has has been incredibly activist over the past three years in government. I mean, they passed so much legislation and made so many regular regulatory changes. A lot of which I think are going to have a real positive impact for for Albertans on Albertans. And I think they really need to really need to talk about that. But I think the thing that 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 they really need to do while doing that is get Rachel Notley out more. I I think she is an exceptional campaigner. And she did so well in 2015, in the 2015 election. She's so smart and she's incredibly likable and, and personable and humble on the campaign trail. And I, I really think that one of the things the NDP need to do, and I think one of the, my biggest criticism of, of the NDP over the past three years is that uh, Rachel Notley hasn't got out to the general public enough. I mean, the busy governing, it's a, it's a steep learning curve. They had to learn and reinvent everything. And, and, I, and I get that. Um, and I get that there's only 24 hours in a day and that, She's the premier, and she's she's their most powerful central figure. And she's she had, I'm sure at one point when this first first starting, she was holding everything together. But I do think over the next year that that Rachel Notley really needs to get out and be seen getting out and talking to Albertans. And I mean, I, I if I were the, if I were the NDP, I would just do I would send Rachel Notley up and down Highway Two between Edmonton and Calgary, and down to Lethbridge, and back up to Grand Prairie and Peace River, and and send her all around the province because I think she's an incredibly effective campaigner uh, and she's really likable and she's smart. And I think that as the, the 2015 election proved, um, Albertan, a lot of Albertans who never would have voted for the NDP ever uh, had, uh, you know, had no problem in 2015 voting for Rachel Notley. And I think that's, that's really why the NDP won the election in 2015. And, uh, and if the NDP are going to be reelected in 2019, as much as it seems like a, a stretch or an uphill uphill battle, which I think it is an uphill is an uphill battle, I think uh, uh, Rachel Notley will be the reason they get reelected in 2019 if they do. And but she needs to get out there and uh, and uh, and and talk to Albertans because I think she's an, she's an ex- excellent campaigner. And for whatever reason, uh, she hasn't been out as much. But I think I think that's one of the things the NDP needs to do to. Uh, to increase support for their party. So thanks for the question, Christy. So the next question we got was from uh, Jerry Gibeau. When are Albertans going to have an honest discussion about how to pay for public services, for example, a sales tax? So it's not, it's not, should we have a sales tax? It's when are we going to get real? When are we going to look in the mirror <laughs> and figure this out? <laughs> Th- thanks for the thanks for the question, Jerry. I, I should note J- Jerry Jabot is actually a former MLA. Uh, he was the MLA from from the New Democrat MLA from Edmonton Mill Woods from uh, from 1986 until 1993, and then he served on the on the public Edmonton Public School Board after that. So, thanks thanks for the question. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure when when Albertans are going to uh, going to have an honest discussion about how we pay for public services and, and deal with the with the sales tax. But it's a question that constantly comes up and it's a question that politicians uh, of all stripes never really want to deal with but it, it is something in terms of, of of dealing with how government generates revenue uh, it is something that we really seriously need to need to deal with in Alberta um, and it you know you can talk about the spending side and, and yeah you can have some le- you know just legitimate debate on the spending side about whether whether there should be cuts or whether there should be increases or, or what that looks like or where you could cut uh, but in terms of, of spending, uh, or pardon me, in terms of revenue, uh, unless we are going to continue being over-dependent on oil and gas royalties, we need to start talking about generating some revenue, unless we want to cut 10 or $15 billion in the budget, if, if balancing the budget is, is what the goal is. Um, 
So it's way past time. We need to have a discussion about a sales tax. We're the only province in Canada without a sales tax. Um, we think we're special because we don't have a sales tax, but it's just creating deficits and and uh, and wreaking havoc on government revenue. I mean, other than praying for the price of oil to go back up, which is you know kind of what what governments do in Alberta when when the price of oil drops. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not really sure what's going to get done. I don't. I don't think the NDP are going to make any big changes in the next year. And and uh, and I, I don't have any hope that a UCP government will uh, will deal with the revenue problems in Alberta. This is kind of one of those questions that gets back to why do we have politics at all? You know, Jerry, with respect, I think we would differ on the definition of an honest discussion here. I think that many people don't think a sales tax is required. We are on record on the show predicting that the Alberta party will have a sales tax on its platform. Oh, that's right. Um, I think that I have one circumstance where I would actually entertain a sales tax, and that would be as a complete replacement of the income tax. But short of that, there's nothing stopping anybody from campaigning against this. Rachel Notley has the political wherewithal to know that it's probably not a great idea, and so she has spiked it pretty hard. But I suspect that in the next NDP leadership, whenever that happens, someone's going to bring it up. You know, go ahead, bring it up. Albertans don't want a sales tax. We have been pretty clear on that. It's had you had to find any traction at all. The the larger debate about taxes and government revenues, you know, these are one of those questions where this is why we have parties with opposing views. We are the only province that doesn't have a sales tax. We're also one of the highest spending per capita provinces that there are. So the classic thing that conservatives say is we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem, and then our friends on the left say we don't have a spending problem, we have a revenue problem. These are political issues. This is the meat and potatoes of politics. Um, the UCP leader was clear on Saturday and before that that he's going to make the next election about the economy and tax relief for families. So if one of the opposition parties wants to run on a sales tax platform, I welcome it. I don't think anybody's afraid of the discussion. I just think there's very little support. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put this episode together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. I'm going to talk to you guys just for a moment about a really great show that's part of the network. It's called Assumptions. So if you can imagine an atheist and a devout uh, religious person coming together on a pod to discuss issues... Uh, that's what Assumptions is all about. And the thing that I love about this show is is the respectful conversation. It's kind of like the uh, religious analog to what Dave Berta does. And uh, you really should give it a listen. Kyle Marshall and uh, his friend, Daniel, do a really great job of respectfully having these conversations about complicated and interesting topics. So give Assumptions a listen if you can. Visit albertapodcastnetwork.com for assumptions and all the other Alberta Podcast Network shows. Also, we are doing a little contest. As you know, we want you to submit reviews for the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you leave us a rating and review until May 31st, so you only have a few more weeks, you'll be entered into a draw for fabulous prizes, which we are in the process of sourcing. Dave, you and I talked about a potential prize that we're actually going to be making part of this prize pack. Do you remember what it was? Uh, we, we talked about so many great ideas. 
our ideas are the best ideas. No, a uh, really great um, book that if you haven't read, uh, you oh, should. Oh, yeah, this is a great book. Yeah. yeah, it's called The Last Campaign, and it's all about Bobby Kennedy uh, campaigning as a Democrat, leading all the way up to his assassination by Sirhan Sirhan. It's it's an excellent book, whether you're whether you're right or left, Democrat or Republican, it's well worth the read. So get those reviews in, and we'll grandfather those of you who've already left reviews. But here's the trick. If you leave or have left us a review, you need to email podcast at daveberta.ca with a screenshot of your review so we know who the heck you are. Yeah, and th- thank you to everyone who's already, uh, who's already sent us in their screenshots and left reviews. We, uh, we really appreciate it. You can send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at, at Dave Berta or at the Dave, on the Dave Berta Facebook page. Uh, or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. Thanks for listening, everybody.